This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. It is September 15th, 2021. It is a beautiful fall day here on Onkachog Territory in Long Island, uh, New York. Um, again, my social location is as a cisgendered, heterosexual, Haitian, Dominican, Italian, American, middle-aged, um, multi-ethnic, uh, in this case, American woman, um, now more interested in the science of the mind as I understand it, um, by our little Buddha, um, over here. And I have another fabulous guest with me here today who, uh, in many ways shares some of my kind of complex intersectionality, um, in his own unique way. And who's the author of two amazing books. One, The Jazz of Physics and the other, Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics, Dr. Stephen Alexander, and he is a professor at Brown of Physics. Uh, he's the 2020 president of the National Society of Black Physicists. He's also a jazz musician, saxophone, if I might add, and released his first electronic jazz album with Aaron Rue, I believe is how you pronounce it, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, you live in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, Dr. Alexander, I'm so pl- so pleased to see you here with us on the Rerooted Podcast today. And thank you for gifting us with your presence and with these two uh, really magical tones. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here with you and everyone. And um, it's also a special honor to to honor one of my one of my teachers, um, people, person I spent a lot of time reading when I was a younger person, and also most recently, Ram Das, the great Ram Das. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, I think one of the things that we were saying off camera before we started recording is that his pursuit was as a seeker. He's someone who, you know, as a white man and, you know, a professor at Harvard and talking about uh, intersectionality and social location and, you know, some of the larger contextual social constraints that we run up run up against in um, systematized and, and institutional oppression, which we'll get into, uh, you know, uh, a little bit later. 
um, that he also was a seeker and that suffering is, is kind of like the first noble truth is like the Buddha's truth is there is suffering and then there's a way, a way out of it. And, and, and I really feel like Ram Das had that, that passion for, for seeking what that might be and pursued it in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. He inspired me because he, you know, I mean, he showed those of us who are, um, on an academic path, um, and who really value or put at first, um, you know, I don't know, we prioritize the discursive mind, the intellect, and end up at places like Harvard or Brown and these, you know, high, um, you know, prestige in that sense. And, and like the Buddha, he kind of said, okay, I, I you know, I, I reached that height, I reached that level, but there's still some more questions that could not be answered in those constructs. And so I think for him, he really inspired me. He is an inspiration for those of us, um, as you said, like a seeker, a great scientist. I think the greatest scientists to me were, you know, like Ram Dass in that way, Albert Einstein. I, mean, I think about my, you know, my heroes, um, Schrodinger, I talk about in the book. Yeah. So I think that that idea of being a seeker and being a, a you know, a, a true, a true scientist are really, you know, they're parallel to each other. Right, right. Yeah, I love it. And that's why I really do appreciate understanding Buddhism from the perspective of not a religion, but a science of the mind. And really, um, as I understand it more and more, has to do so much with the way in which our own um, limbic system, our neuroscience, our brain systems, and our, our emotional learnings, and our physiology, and our, our nervous system, all these kinds of things, how they are influenced, how could they not be? Um, as you said, we're, we are stardust um, by the causes and conditions, as the Buddha pointed out, that everything is sort of always in constant contact with, with something else and influencing things that are seen and unseen. And that we, when we invite in that curiosity, we follow our intuition, as you so beautifully talked about, which I'm going to ask you more about with Dr. Kaplan. He inspired you to kind of follow and pursue your, your, your intuition. Um, that this is where we kind of start to address some of those big questions and perhaps think outside of the box. And I think, um, in my estimation, anyway, the kind of thinking that you're talking about inspiring in people is the kind that people like Sonia Renee Taylor talks about when she is talking about abolishing the police or why we need to re-envision a new system and we're talking about radical self-love and radical compassion. So structurally, we have big things happening with this curiosity and this possibility when we think outside of the box. And then we very much are inspired to like rethink equations and things like that that you talk about in here. So in any case, I've said a lot. I want to start with your um, with your background. You are uh, well. You tell me about your background in terms of your ethnicity, how you grew up, what inspires you about the island that you came from, and what it's been like uh, to go through uh, high school in the Bronx, and sort of what inspired you to become the physicist. I know you've talked about some of this in your TED talk, which I encourage people to listen to, um, and and sort of bring us up to date a little bit with the early life part of you. Yeah, thanks for um, asking. Um, so I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. Well, it's the, the country of Trinidad and Tobago, two separate islands. Um, <clears throat> and I grew up in a in um, it's sort of like in Bastier, Maruga, um, which was a very beautiful part of the island. And, um, you know, and lots of nature close to the ocean and all that stuff. So there was a sense growing up of, of being very connected with nature and running around in the bush, whatever, the, you know, the forest and things like that as a kid. Um, I have great memories of that, a very happy childhood. And then, yeah, my family immigrated to the Bronx, New York, when I was eight years old in 1979. <clears throat> and I found myself in this completely new world. Um, and I met 
And, you know, in Trinidad, I think one big influence, looking back at it, it only became clear to me now, um, but our prime minister, the first prime minister of Trinidad, um, Eric Williams, Dr. Eric Williams, the great historian who actually taught at Harvard University um, and wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery that inspired a whole generation of Pan-Africanists, the people that went back to Africa to lead countries. Mm. Um, Barack Obama's, you know, like it wasn't a person that was also inspired by Eric Williams. So he was like a philosopher king. He wrote 11 books when he was prime minister. Wow. But I remember as a kid watching a black and white TV and I was probably six years old. My mother was in the kitchen and he had a very um, distinct look. He had, he used to wear shades and an airpiece, like, a, like, a, like he was like, you know, anyway, <laughs> I remember seeing him, like he would address the nation. He would communicate a lot to the, to the people. He'd give lectures every Sunday and, um, on, his, on history, right, to the common people of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and I remember seeing him on TV using, um, like he graduated at the top of his class at Oxford University. This guy was a really powerful intellect, and he was probably the person that, you know, really made the case for liberation for the for the Caribbean islands, for independence. And, and then, you know, really through debate, through the sharpness of his mind, was able to, you know, to conquer, right? Because he was so respected. His intellect was so respected. But here's the thing. He was on TV. And I remember as a kid watching this, this guy using these huge, big words, like, you know, words that I still don't even know because his vocabulary was so insane. And then after he said that, he would say, and in other words, I see in this in the Trinidadian tongue. So there was this kind of thing about him that came across to me that no matter how high you go in, in a particular axis of accomplishment, right, the power of being able to never forget where you come from and relate and respect. And I think that that was something that has lived with me throughout my, um, my life, which is no matter where I go, I always kind of remember Eric Williams in this way and as, as an example. And Ram Dass in that sense, too. It's like, look, I don't care what kind of big words you know, what kind of equations I know. If At the end of the day, that's not high science. You know, high science is being able to, I think, relate and respect and, and do your best to do that. You know, it's, it's more of an ideal. It's not that I, <laughs> I always come short, fall short in, in that. And I, so anyway, so that, that's something that I think is influenced. So when I moved to the Bronx as a kid, um, there wasn't much opportunity. You know, my dad was a cab driver and, you know, became a computer tech on the side. My mom went back to community college because she was a housewife and then became a nurse mm -hmm. um, at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. And those, you know, just seeing that my parents were always valuing education, that this was an important thing to them, that made a big difference. But there was a lot of education going on in the Bronx. And, you know, we'll get back to that. But, you know, the hip hop culture that I was growing up with in the Bronx during that time, that's when hip hop was really coming out of the Bronx in my even in my own neighborhood. Um, that was highly influential. Um, so, yeah, it was a very multicultural thing. I mean, the other part of me that that's interesting, I think, not interesting, many parts, I, um, but this most that's interesting these days is that Trinidad is um, made up mostly of Africans, you know, that came over um, um, and and also Indians from India that came over um, as indentured servants, right? right? Rice fields and sugarcane fields. And that's half. So both of my, I mean, I'm, so I have half um, Indian ancestry. Um, it's a very common thing in Trinidad. 
Yeah. And, and half African, though I identify with being, you know, I, I identify, self-identify as being an African-American because I'm an African, you know, of African ancestry from the Americas. Right. And so I really feel very connected to the African diaspora. And um, so that's a more of a self-identification. But culturally, I'm very these days interested in Indian music, Carnatic Indian music. And I play now with a new band. We're forming a new band with Hash, who's the basis of the Theory Corporation. He's a good friend. Mm-hmm. Shrinivas Reddy, who is a great sitar player and jazz guitarist. And um, Jesus Ayundar, a band called, our band is called Metaverse. Oh, I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and anyway, so that's something in terms of, you're asking me about my background. I'm connected yeah. with that, that side of me through the music now. And I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm now a student again. Mm-hmm. In terms of that stuff in that, that tradition. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer, but you said no, it up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, I mean, I think it helps to have people get, whenever I do these podcasts, my mom always tells me, I want to know more about their history. I want to know more about the person. I want to know more about their background. I'm like, okay, mom, she'll be happy with this one. Um, but I mean, I think it's just interesting because there are so many things that are so rich in our world and in our culture. And, 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 and when we have different backgrounds, like there's so many riches from my Italian side, there's so many riches from my Haitian Dominican side, and they're all different. And then there's everything I picked up along the way, just like you growing up in the eighties. I think we're probably about the same age. And, um, you know, the influences of hip hop, pop culture, you know, whatever it is, um, that, that happens, um, in a, in a, in an upbringing. Um, I just think that we're, we're, it's lovely to see you circle back to some of this Indian music that is, you know, so inspiring and kind of find the connections and stuff like that. Um, let's maybe talk a couple pieces about uh, your teacher. Um, he inspired you in, in high school uh, and, and, and just sort of, I, I was crying when I was watching your TED talk because I was so inspired by his compassion. I'm even getting teary now thinking about it. Because it's that kind of like presence and compassion and love that comes out of someone to inspire someone like yourself. And then you pick up the ball and then you run with it and then you plant new seeds. So talk to me a little bit about Dr. Kaplan and how he lives in you and through you. Yeah, he lives in me um, in the sense of. um, um, So, yeah, just to summarize, you know, I was, you know. I was a bad, you say like, you know, you know, true, someone that doesn't like to go to classes or cut classes and things like that. I was that guy you know, in my high school, DeWitland High School in the Bronx. You know, we had about 6,000 students in that school. Um, things were very interesting <laughs> during those days <laughs> in, you know, 1986 through 89 uh, when I was in high school. And um, there was very little reason that I felt motivated to go to school. Um, a lot of it is, I think, you know, I was just internalizing that, you know, as a young African-American man growing up, that there was something problematic about me. Mm. I'm saying that I'm expected maybe one day to end up in jail. You know, I think it's Joe Johnson. I think the, the prison diary, of, I think it was Joe Jackson or Joe Johnson. You have to correct me on this. I read in college in a sociology class where he is saying from the day I, you know, I was young, there's something that I was, you know, that told me that. I was, I'm expected to end up in jail, that that was, you know, and of course he was in jail when he was writing his diary. Um, um, so, you know, so for a teacher to do the following thing, which what he did was I walked in the classroom, it was a physics classroom um, at Dewey Clinton High School. He, he walked and instead of going to the front of the blackboard 
and writing equations down, which we are kind of afraid of, he sat, he actually sat in a desk in the middle of the classroom. So he kind of, there was a personally engaged with us in this way, you know, nowadays we're so antsy about our space and all these things, you know, right. um, so coddled in that way, you know, um, I'm talking about how we sanitize young people. Yeah. Sanitize, you know, because we have our devices now. That's how we connect with people. Right. Mr. Cap, this guy came and sat in the middle of the class. And so, you know, there was this kind of what, why is this guy doing this kind of thing? He pulls out a ball from the inside pocket. We didn't know what he was going to pull out, by the way. So there was a kind of like suspense there. And then he says, all right, you know, um, he throws a ball, this ball, observe this ball. And today we're going to talk about one of the most fundamental concepts in physics. No one, we didn't know any physics. Nobody, it's just 10th grade, right? um, And he throws the ball up in the air. The ball goes up and it comes back down. He goes, you know, um, you know, when the ball went to the top, notice that the velocity was zero. It stopped. What is the velocity of the ball when it hit my hand? And no physics now. No one knew anything, right? Now, it took 2,500 years for, for going back all the way back to the, the Socratics, you know, Plato, Aristotle, um, Ptolemy, all the way to Kepler, then Newton, to understand this principle but what happened was, I'm not, by the way, I'm not making myself equivalent to any of these people. No, no. <laughs> but, I, you know, but the point there was that um, I, I just, in my head, was just picturing the motion of this ball, like, you know, in slow motion. And I just, in, you know, let, I just raised my hand. It was the first time in my life maybe I ever rose my hand in the classroom. Um, because I just, I think the fact that he was just, he kind of um, broke the discomfort. So when I called that answer, I said, oh, yeah, the, the velocity, the speed of the ball is exactly the same as um, when it left your hand originally. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was like, that is the principle of the conservation of energy. Um, that answer is correct. And after class. Um, no. And then he goes. The. You right there, you 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 know you were being a great physicist because that is the I forget the word he used, but you know that is the the guiding principle of people yeah, who of, of what great physicists do mm-hmm. right? the intuition, not the math, not the right memorization and all that stuff, right? And then after class, he comes up to me. He goes, "You know, you have a real talent for this." Mm-hmm. Um, and why I want you to come to my, he had this big office with like, he was also the chair of the music department and he was a jazz, a professional jazz musician. And he goes, I want you to come to my office whenever you want. You didn't, you, I want you to know that you can always just come and hang out. I have lots of books. We can talk music and literally instead of cutting classes now, I was just going into his office and learning physics and learning things, but not like the stuff you're going to learn in a class. He would tell me about quantum physics and about, you know, it was just, he was engaged in my curiosity. And what he demonstrated to me was like, I think you're smart. Um, and I think that that really opened me up. And that's one of so that legacy is something I tried in our practice with my students and when I interact with people, mm. um, especially people who, um, who are traditionally made to feel that they're not smart or they're not good at things like physics. Um, I think I have a wider um, antennas to be able to, see talent where it's traditionally not seen and like Mr. Kaplan, be able to call it out 
and, and, and empower and validate young people who are traditionally not told and are made to feel that they're smart in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's such a beautiful legacy. And I love the way that, you know, you're explaining that you were sort of drawn to pursue something like this in a, in a very dedicated way. Um, and so it, it's funny, it starts with the intuition that you learn all of the things that are like the tough learning, like the calculus and the equations, and you're doing all of those things where you're sort of grinding it out. And then you kind of, once you, you know, a lot of the musicians that I've talked to on this podcast, you know, once you've done all of that, then you go free. And then you get to your improvisation place and then you get, then you're really free. And I think that's also what the Buddha is pointing to is that when we're able to practice our mindfulness, when we're able to be what we call one pointed concentration, it's not to get into a jhana state of being in some kind of checked out place where we're sort of like, you know, sometimes people see this picture of people sitting on a lotus and, you know, in lotus position and, and those things. some big smile on their face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you may be, and you may experience states of bliss and all of that um, from time to time, but that the that the real sort of gift, the real is the clear seeing. What am I with now? And what is possible? And what is open? What what can I be open to? So many of the people that I work with who have trauma, who have stopped process within their body, their neurophysiology, their limbic system, the ways and their sort of self-beliefs and you know, the ways in which they've experienced the world, whether they've been stopped by cops when they were 16, like if you listen to Dr. Kenneth Hardy and he was, you know forever impacted. He's a black psychologist who talks about the, you know, privileged and the subjugated and a lot of racialized trauma and things like that, that that leaves an imprint on someone. And some of my classmates from Harvard that I went to school with, you know, they too, even James Blake, the tennis player, I play tennis, you know, that he was stopped um, and racially profiled a few years ago, that these things impact someone and, and, and the nervous system. And when we follow out through this place of, um, I don't know, I guess just being really good at something, then we're free to connect and see what's really here. And I think that's the Buddhist teaching. So you have a both and when it comes to, I was this original intuition, this sort of, you know, thing that was celebrated and, you know, sort of offered to me by my professor, by my teacher, you know, Mr. Kaplan. And then I went, I studied it and now I offered to other people. Uh, And I see in people who otherwise would not be seen um, their gifts, and I want to really pull that out. And so I just want to name that because um, all the research has shown that if kids have a black teacher, for example, and they're black, then they're going to be able to perform better differently in school. Um, that is, I think, under kind of underappreciated by it, like, you know, by it's usually underappreciated, but it's so obvious, you know, just the same way if I, you know, we, you watch movies and you see, if you're only seeing that the scientists in a movie look a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way, and, you know, what? And then it sends a very clear message, I guess, maybe some um, projected embodiment that, it, it, you know, you, you can't be that because you're not seeing yourself, your future self doing that. So I think, like, you know, I'll give you an example. When I taught, when I was in, even in college in physics classes, and I went to a very competitive school like, like yours, um, a lot of the black students would sit in the back of the room in a classroom for, for good reasons. Maybe we didn't feel welcome or you know, for whatever reason, I don't want, that's a much longer conversation to have. Um, but it's really funny now that when I teach my physics classes at, at Brown, you know, the students of color now are sitting in the front of the room and they got a big Kool-Aid smile on their face. Yeah. I wonder why, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's beautiful because there, I really think that there's something super powerful about 
seeing yourself reflected. I mean, when we talk about neuroscience, we talk about mirror neurons. We talk about, for example, mimicking gestures. So a lot of the work that I do with clients and a lot of why um, secure attachment between mothers and infants is fostered by the beam gleam of I see you, I see, you know, I see me and you, you see you and me, we're connected in this way. Um, and with mirror neurons that I'm, my gestures are going to be reflected, your gestures are going to be reflected, that kind of thing. Imagine how much more powerful that is if not only there's that attunement, but there's also that representation, you know, so it, it really does sink into our, our limbic system, our conditioning. For you, how does that work for you in terms of when you think about spiritual, like, you know, the spiritual quest? I used to like going into an American spaces um, and then like if you see, you know, a person of color as the sort of head teacher or the, the, the Zen master or, you know, versus something else. Does that work? Does that parallel carry over in those spaces in your experience? What I've noticed is, and, and, and it, I love the fact that you're asking me this question because I've thought about it a lot up until about five or six years ago when my mentor, Dr. Jack Cornfield, who is a student and colleague and friend of Ram Das, and who still continues to teach um, mindfulness at Spirit Rock and worldwide now online, um, he's the one who to my lineage too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Good. It, um, okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and, and again, I'm less, I mean, a lineage that in my view, a particular lineages and teachers, they're so revered because we've made our connection to the Dharma, the universal truth, the, the cosmos, the whole kit and caboodle, um, through something. And so that lineage is able to kind of guide us there. A good teacher can kind of guide us into that place. And yet that place is the place. However you get there, whatever the road is, whatever the lineage is, um, there are different lineages. There's Zen, there's Theravada, and there's Mahamudra, there's Dzogchen, there's the yogic tradition, there's the shamanic traditions. The embodiment piece, the, you know, the connective piece, um, I feel in many ways, you know, is, is all, um, it's not the same and it is the same, kind of like the relative and the absolute, you know. But anyway, uh, anyway, um, what did you ask me? You asked about what it is when I see a black teacher in a mindfulness type of setting or something like that. And so my teacher, Dr. Cornfield, invited me to start studying racialized trauma and systemic oppression when I was his student about six years ago. It is not something that I had ever interrogated. Wow. <laughs> I had never thought about it in this way. I had always been aware of my, um, what I called it, my multi-ethnicity. I wrote my Harvard application essay about it. I talked a little bit about the, the varying things that I was experiencing at 18. You know, my hair was this way, not that way. I was round and curvy. I wasn't thin and blonde. I wasn't these things that other girls were when I was growing up with all white people in an all white suburb in Massachusetts with my all white Italian family because my parents were divorced. And I was horrified at some of the things that I was learning about how ignorant I was about systemic and institutional oppression. And then, you know, sort of took the challenge to go and be more learned, which was very painful. I was depressed for about six months. Um, and then, uh, and then to sort of maybe turn it around and do something about it and claim more, claim more fully. I think, who I really am and what I'm really about. Not that I had ever consciously denied it. I just never had interrogated it. I just never really fully explored it. You know, if I danced salsa or I spoke a little bit of French or something like that with my dad when I was young, that was one thing, but that's about where it 
came and went. And so when I go into mindfulness centers and I see what was then mostly white teachers, it was very normative to me. I was very like, I'm white, they're white, they're white, I'm white. It wasn't really like, I was like, I'm not white. Although I would sometimes feel like I wasn't quite like that. And and I remember I, one class that I took, it was for... Um, it was called uh, some, something like White Awake or something. It was in the New York Insight Meditation Center. And it was about uh, understanding whiteness and, and sort of becoming a better white ally or something like that. And the person asked me, do you identify as white? And I said, for the purposes of this class. And I said, yeah, sure, because I am. If you look at my ancestry, like technically like 75% European. And then at the same time, I went to another class and they asked me, uh, well, if you want to be part of this person of color group, do you identify as black or as a person of color? And I said, yes. And so then I joined that sitting group. And so I sort of have had a view, a multiple view on both ends. And it was only when I took a class with a black somatic experiencing practitioner who called out and named, notice what you're feeling in your body, taking instruction and learning from me as a black queer woman, if you are in a body that isn't identified as a person of color. Notice what it's like for you to sit there and have me be your teacher. Are you taking me as seriously as a white person? Are you taking me as seriously as a man, as a cisgendered heterosexual person? Can you hear what I'm saying or is the way that I'm communicating off-putting to you in some way or not? And so what I would notice is when I would sit, long answer to your question, but when I would sit in mindfulness settings and I would receive teachings from a Black teacher initially, I would often say to myself, well, this is interesting. I don't know this teacher as well. I haven't heard of them as much or I don't know, you know, I'm not as familiar with maybe what it is that they're, that they're offering, but of course it's all the Dharma. And I would be probably a little bit more critical. I would probably have that inclination. And I would then kind of step back and say, wow, look at that. And then I would remember what it was like to be in both, be in both spaces. And then I would remember my own social location and say, well, what do you think people see when you're talking and you're teaching? They're not seeing a white blonde girl. <laughs> so, you know, or a black or, or, or a white, you know, uh, Ram Dass looking person. So in my experience, I guess the long and longer answer is, is that I have had checks on myself all along the way. And predominantly Dharma teachers in the West have been white men and white women. And they've begun to fully interrupt that um, by training more people of color, more queer folks and non-binary folks to be Dharma teachers. And I perhaps am a little bit a part, a part of that. Um, but in any case, I, I don't know if that helps at all in terms of answering your question. No, so, no I think just talking, I just wanted to and so I think I've felt comfortable to just bring that up because I've been in many of spaces. Um, you know, I, I'm a lay, a very lay practitioner and, I, and I, I'm very inconsistent, but there were times I was consistently going to the Providence Zen Center. And, um, and you know, and one of my first teachers um, was, you know, a woman Zen master, Bobby Rhodes. And I think that was very important, um, you know, very important for me to experience her teaching and her influence on me because I think subconsciously you grew up with these narratives that you know like the same way like I come from a Judeo-Christian background so Christ you know was just this white dude who was this who who was the son of God right and, you know and then like you know again similar like you know um you know as a a black person 
you know, can I ever be enlightened? Or can black people be enlightened? You know, the same way, can we be great physicists, right? So there are these, um, I would say, there are these, um, you know, projections and idealization and, and um, subconscious things that I, I remember I, I, I carried with me going and to practice and, and, and you know, and when we see that our, you know, these so-called, these enlightened people not looking like us, it's interesting because obviously, you know, what is enlightenment anyway? But, but the point there, there's this kind of ideal and a narrative, even in the traditions. And so it was really powerful when I went to the Providence Zen Center, like, you know, before the pandemic, I was going on a regular basis, um, that the abbot is a brother, you know? So that yeah. was cool. Like, you know, Sunim, we call him Sunim. He was, and that, and that guy was really, it was very, I, you know, it kind of made the place more welcoming. And maybe that's small-minded of me, but it, 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 you know, well, I guess it's similar to when the kids come into my classroom, and you know, they see a, in my opinion, a very able physicist, but be very comfortable in the skin, and may throw a couple of slang words out from time to time. You know? Right, right, because you're not just a physics teacher, you're not just a musician or professor, you're not just, you know, uh, a guy who loves hip hop and, and and music and things like that. You know, you're all of that, and they inform one another, which I think is what you bring to your work. So let's get to that a little bit. You talk in these books. Um, you can talk about um, either one, but perhaps this is your newer one, the Fear of the Black Universe. You, you talk about um, particular principles in here, and you also talk about the challenges that you face within the institution, I think they call it the academy, you know, academia, and um, the ways in which you can kind of get cock-blocked from doing certain things or, you know, that that you're sort of seen in certain ways by people who look a particular way and how that's real and how you've navigated that and how um, your very intersectionality, your very um, essential self, the ways in which that you've been imprinted by all these different things, including your race and your ethnicity, have influenced your ability to intuit and your ability to think outside the box and perhaps your ability to solve some of these life's biggest questions through through physics and the things that you look at. Yeah, so in the, and I guess uh, I just want to, see, you want me to just speak to that? Okay. Um, or, or something else if you prefer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I try to get across in the book um, was... For me, the book was, you know, I wrote it because I felt like there was some there were things happening that I wanted to, I need to process. So me, the writing, writing the book was a, a way of me processing and articulating and getting out and re, and form and crystallizing things I was trying to understand in terms of like, how do I do my physics? How do I do it better? And how do I, um, you know, how do I work with others, um, including the PhD students that I'm training um, and postdocs and I'm mentoring? How do I, you know, how do I do this better? And so writing a book was a way of exploring that. So it was kind of a selfish act in that sense. And I think what came out of that, one of the things that came out of that in the book was I realized that, um, that you know, I was on this path and this quest maybe to be an insider. I mean, let me just be an insider, I'll be in the club. And that just simply means, you know, there are certain checkpoints, like, you know, you get, you know, your PhD, you get, you, you know, postdoc, you, know, you go to fancy big name places. And I was fortunate to have done that. Right. Um, yeah. Um, then you get your faculty job, tenure track, then you get earned tenure, then you become a full professor and you get the big awards and you get, you know, so I accomplished all of those things. Right. Um, big deal. And, um, um, and, and, but I, and then I realized though that Wow, I still feel uncomfortable, and when I walk into certain rooms, I you know, 
and maybe that's just my own my own stuff, right? I feel um, that when I go, one time I went to a conference that I'm not, I won't I won't mention the name of the place because that's not useful. But it was like you know a very 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 um, big place for physics, and you know they produce like more than twenty Nobel Prize winners. Um, and I, I just remember being in there as a full professor with everyone else. And I left the conference early because I just, you know, was sitting at the corner of the room by myself and, you know, and always feeling that like I have to be the one to go and talk to colleagues and, you know, people wouldn't necessarily come and talk to me about talk shop because, because they were just coming. It wasn't that they didn't want to talk to me. They were just more comfortable talking to each other. Right. right. That's all. So, a- AKA other white people. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, and but so for me, the the um, the gift in writing this book for me was actually was about not a oh woe is me I, you know um, I'm a I'm this poor black guy that's not being treated well by my white colleagues and all this stuff and and we need to go tear it all down no that's not where I was coming from in writing this book the book was actually was was me realizing that. Yes, I have a, I'll always be an outsider and it's to be celebrated. Mm. And it's actually, there's something really cool about that. And then when I started doing research, when I started doing research about the other great physicists, you know, um, in the quantum revolution and the relativity revolution, back then, and by the way, the outsider thing, I also not, didn't mean outsider in terms of just race. I meant outsiders in terms of having outside ideas. Sometimes mm. what people call woo-woo maybe, or, <laughs> or, or, you know, or, you know, having, yeah, so I call this, the Black universe thing was about Black ideas, too, which could be stigmatized because they're not accepted by the status quo. So it was all of those outsider things, those things that would make somebody an outsider in a scientific space. Obviously, this can be applied else in other spaces. But what's the, the book was really about celebrating that um, and not only celebrating, embracing it and actually then deliberately in the book talking about outside ideas as well mm-hmm. and having fun with that. So it is, and I knew I was going to walk a tightrope there because I did not want the book to come across as yet again, another person just complain about that. That's not to me productive necessarily. I think the thing that's productive is for me to say, I'm proud of having a foot on the outside. And no matter how much I become, I'm in, you know, in the, ins- on the inside, quote unquote, um, I'm always going to keep a foot on the outside because there are benefits to that. And then I talk about bus, I talk about graffiti, um, graffiti art mm-hmm. and you know, you know, different forms of music, yeah. John Coltrane, and that where people deliberately would celebrate that outsideness and bring ideas in from the outside, right? Um, because it was um, it was generative of progress. Right. 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 Being open to what's generative and nourishing and emergent and possible or whatever else is out there um, can be inspired by being, as you say, an outsider or continuing to have one foot on the outside. I I kind of did it the other way where I was sort of working on the outside. I I was a television news anchor and a reporter for 20 years. And then um, I sort of started to understand and practice, you know, a little bit of trauma, mindfulness, you know, work and, and these kinds of things. And I was, I was teaching that and practicing that. And then I came back to go to graduate school to be part of the, the sort of, you know, group um, of people who are professional therapists, because I knew that there would be certain um, street cred to having uh, for gatekeepers um, 
you know, an official psychotherapy license and things like that. But not because the work itself mattered, not because it, it was, it was different, um, but because it helped me be able to, um, move throughout the world a little bit easier to have that behind me. Um, and have people perhaps take me more seriously, even though what I was saying was probably more true when I was on the other side and I had my foot on the outside. Um, so in any case, talk about, um, maybe talk a little bit more about that, the John, you know, John Coltrane. I, you know, I, I don't know if you go into um, the city. You said you go to Smalls and stuff and, and listen to Ravi at all down at the his son. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember listening to Herbie Hancock. Oh, my boy, Stacey Dillard. I think, you know, one of the great sax players in the New York um, scene. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm so glad that people are able to play music again um, a little bit with the vaccines now, although carefully, yeah. cautiously, mindfully. Um that I remember when I was young, I, I, well, two things came to mind. When I was young, like six or seven, thinking outside of the box, my, I grew up Catholic, Italian. Uh, I said to Father Foley, the, the Irish priest, I said, why are there no altar girls? Why are there only altar boys? <laughs> you know, and his jaw kind of dropped because at the time there were no altar girls. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, that idea to kind of interrupt the, the status quo uh, was always there in me a little bit too. Um, but when you, when you go to Smalls or when you go listen to Wayne Shorter and, and Herbie Hancock, you know, when I was in high school or college, I, I listened to these guys and, and I listened to another piano player named Emmett Cohen the other day that I interviewed for the podcast. And I said, what were they doing? He said, and you'll appreciate this. He said, I said, I didn't really get the music. It was so much fusion, kind of that late Miles Davis stuff. Uh, and he says, they're playing the music of the stars. That makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about why it makes sense to you. Talk to me. Um, how how does it make sense to you? That's what my, which album were we referring to? Uh, Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. It was probably around 1995, 96. I forget what it was called. I could look it up. I know the cover. Okay, 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 yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus, I mean, Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. I mean, especially Wayne Shorter, one of my favorite sax players, was, um, yeah, I mean, he is... I, I, you know, I, I had the pleasure. First of all, he is a rock, what I call a rocket scientist. He is like deeply interested in, in, in scientific matters. Mm. And I knew this because my friend, Will Calhoun, who I play with, the great, the great drummer for Living Color and, you know, just like a genius in my humble opinion. Will, um, from time to time, I play with Will. And Will has also been a great mentor of mine. Um, and Will took me, Will was played, um, you know, um, a great, um, played with Wayne Shorter um, and was on a Grammy Award with an album with Wayne Shorter. And, um, and as a result of that, at Wayne Shorter's 75th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall, I, was, I got the chance to meet Wayne Shorter and I gave him um, a book for his birthday, 75th birthday, written by my friend Lee Smolin. Um, it's called Three Roads to Quantum Gravity. Mm. He was just like such a... Um, Delighted. Yeah, so I, you know, so it's no surprise that again his music is inspired by the stars, by 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 space time and quantum physics and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but John Coltrane did an album called Interstellar Space, and every song was named after a planet, right? Um, so, you know, again, this is a kind of okay. So Coltrane, I think is an example and Wayne Short and Herbie Hancock, which is, you know, when you reach a level of mastery and you're comfortable in your skin because of that level of mastery mm -hmm. uh, within a tradition, then you have no fear going, going outside and, you know, and exploring more. And um, in other words, 
if I know something really, really well, I don't want to talk to a clone of myself, somebody that knows exactly the same thing. I'm probably going to be more interested in talking to people that know things, that knows other things or doing other things because I'm just interested in, you know, um, in an exchange or in benefiting from, from that new information. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, my first PhD advisor, Leon Cooper, who won the Nobel Prize and knows more physics than anybody else I know, um, he was talking to the students that may, you know, in graduate school that may have been deemed to be the dumb ones, you know. I mean, maybe there was a reason for that. So, again, um, the outsider thing for me is also about that, that, you know, when you're comfortable and when you feel you've reached a level of proficiency, maybe, you know, yeah, you're going to you're going to go on the outside a little bit. And let me I don't want to make too much of the word outsider. Maybe there's a better word than that. But, sure, you know, sure. You know. I, I guess. I'll, I'll, another way of thinking outside of the box, you know, whatever's normative, whatever's the, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint, I don't know if you know the work of Ian McGillchrist at all, but in the, his, his book, big book, you would appreciate it called The Master and His Emissary. And he talks about how sort of we in our culture, Western culture in particular, not so much in other cultures that are a little bit more rooted, grounded, a little bit more indigenous um, still, as we all really technically are, we're trying to find our way back there, I think, actually. Um, and we need to because of the climate challenges that we're facing, but that this, this idea of, um, Oh, the master is emissary, Ian yes. that the left brain and the right brain, that the left brain should be in service to the right brain, the limbic system and the imprintings and the emotional learnings where our intuition and our meaning making and our, our, our imagination is. And, and it's really kind of inverted as opposed to, um, you know, we're sort of trying to push down oftentimes the, with the left brain, the linear way. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and that we're, we're sort of, we're needing one to help support the other, but that we often are sort of like over algorithmizing our world, if you will, to a certain degree that like we're not so much valuing. That's why I was crying when I was reading, you know, watching your TED talk and listening to you talk about um, your teacher, um, Professor Kaplan, teacher Kaplan, because he was leading from the heart. He was leading from a place that was embodied and actually caring. He wasn't just leading from, as you say, the chalkboard. That would be the left brain, the right brain. So this Ian McGill, Chris, kind of talks about um, how we can use our left brain to support some of our limbic right brain imagination and thinking outside of the box, if you will. Not so much being an outsider, but thinking outside the box. Yes. I totally, I totally resonate with that. Yeah. That's very interesting. I never, I never saw it that way. Well, it's, it's this is just for people who want to know. It's it's a big book, um, but that's the book. Um, if you want to add it to your list, I'm sure you've got nine million books like me that you haven't looked at, and others that's that you're. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, the, it's it's called the the subtitle is the divided brain and the making of the Western world. Which is interesting. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I just so 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 let's maybe talk a little bit about. Um, your connection between music, um, physics, quantum physics, and spirituality, um, mm. perhaps. Um, maybe just sort of however you want to explore that in conversation. Yeah, I think the one thing about all of those things, those dimensions um, of, um, of us, is that, you know, I'm teaching a class this semester which traces um, the evolution and or the development um, leading to modern physics, going way back to like say 500 BC. Um, the story starts, of course, with Pythagoras, but obviously we know that Pythagoras spent like many years in Egypt, and you know, the, you know, so there's a whole thing there. 
And but anyway, this class basically looks at the evolution. But even going back, you know, the point is going way back to the birth, um, not the birth, but like you know, earlier stages of like what we now know as physics and quantum physics started with basically a spirit, you know, two things. You know, um, the question is. Um, what, where do we, you know, where do we come from? How did the world originate? And, and that was definitely seen through a spiritual lens and explored um, through that lens. And, you know, people like Pythagoras and Plato and, you know, and these um, natural philosophers, um, and not to mention like insights from the Egyptian mystery schools, um, and going all the way to, you know, um, um, Schrodinger, reading Vedic philosophy, right? Yeah. To gain some of the conceptual insights into the, the quote-unquote logical framework of quantum mechanics, or if you want to say the duality or the complementarity or the coexistence between opposing realities in the case of a, something can be both a wave and a particle at the same time, breaking through that, he definitely sought insight, conceptual insight, from Vedic philosophy through Schopenhauer. And, you know, you know um, Max Planck saying that, um, that consciousness basically is, is, you know, underneath, you know, physical reality. Max Planck is uh, the Planck, fundamental Planck constant in quantum mechanics, right? So there's a whole tradition of um, where spirituality um, as a tool, as a, as a, as a, um, um, a device for scientific inquiry, is part of very much part of the tradition of physics. Mm, One, mm. Um, there's a lineage there as well. I mean, right? That doesn't get us away from doing experiments and confirming things with experiments. But the doing of physics, the doing of it, the the exploration to discover new things in in the physical world. Um, one device could be the spiritual quest and and and, sp- and looking at philosophies from from spiritual traditions. That has just been a fact, and I talk about that in my book. Um, mm-hmm. another thing there for me is, um, is, you know, is I think spiritual practice, like things like, you know, um, meditation, um, you know, you know, physical activities, things like yoga, like running, whatever, you know, whatever it is that we use to get our mind in the place where it can be, it could receive, it can be an antenna to pick up, you know, secrets of the universe and, and see things in different ways. Again, this is. So I kind of think of this as a toolbox as a scientist um, that, you know, that's, that, that has its advantages, but it's not to be right. But as a scientist, you know, the game that we play is that we always have to come back and say, does, you know, how does this, how does this relate to experiment? But that's exactly what, you know, the Buddha was teaching too, right? Yeah. That's what I got from what he was teaching. It's like, if you don't see it for yourself, then that's great. It's all recorded in books and there's sutras and all stuff, but, if you don't see see this for yourself, then and that's the experiment. Right. We are the experiment. That's right. right? Yeah. That's yeah. No, I I love that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Ehi pasako. You know, come and come and look. Come and come and see for yourself. The invitation is is there, and um, and to examine what that is. And of course, that's why you know the the observer. What is what is that Schrodinger? The observer and you know cha- the observer changes what's observed. What's observed changes by. <laughs> You know the 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 difference between who's observing the thing um, and the thing itself, the matter and the wave, and and however that works, I don't know. You're the scientist. You're the physicist. Um, that that things will will appear differently to different people based on their perception. 
Um, yes. and, and, and that that is so, I think, fundamental to understanding things like implicit bias, um, you know, just all the isms that we experience structurally and whatnot. And I guess I'm curious, what do you think helps us get back to more of a place of, for whatever it's worth, to be able to recognize our perceptions, but not be driven exclusively by them? Um, ask that question just one more time because I was, it, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a tough one, actually. Yeah, I mean, we, I think in, in, in my experience, mind, the, core, the core idea of mindfulness is to be able to recognize your conditioning, your perceptions, what you call your Vedanas, whether or not I like something or not, whether or not I have a feeling about it or not. And am I going to follow and act on that impulse or am I going to have the sacred pause and I'm going to act differently based on what I know, which we would call clear seeing. I think with, I think that's the whole Buddha's point is you can have all of that. We cannot not be conditioned. Some of us have different sets of conditioning. But how, from a physics point of view perhaps, or just in your own experience, you know, how do you think we can solve that by not just acting out our conditioning? Homo sapiens sapiens, the ones who are aware that we're aware, how can we really live out of that and be embodied out of that as opposed to just, you know, doing our default and, uh, you know, repeating the same old, same old, which has got us into trouble, I think, from the climate especially. Yes, that's really good. Um, I think, you know, um, for me, I there are two places where I'm, I, I maybe have... I, can explore that with my, just in the practice or in the act of being a scientist and a teacher, because for me, my teaching how, and, you know, is connected to my research. So the scientific research I do, mm-hmm. I work in a field like where I think about the fundamental laws and how, and the mysteries still the unsolved problems with these fundamental laws, you know, quantum mechanics, Einstein's theory of general relativity, the fact that, you know, they're asking to be unified, we call this quantum gravity, and how, uh, how cosmology, things that, you know, dark energy, the fact, you know, that most of the universe is, you know, you know occupied by dark energy, um, we give it a word, it's a space filled for something we have no idea what it is, and, um, and how do these anomalies that we see, you know, how could we use that to guide us to understand what quantum gravity might actually look like, and in terms of developing that theory, and for me, teaching like when I you know when I when I work with students who don't know as much physics as say I do right I think it's being um yeah I mean you know um, if I'm teaching something about quantum mechanics let's say it's important to get that job done and, and and try to teach as clearly as possible with the known, you know, the knowns, because you're, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to confer skills, a skill set, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the necessary mathematics. But while you, while I'm doing that, um, keeping space um, and exuding a kind of, um, um, you know, I welcome you now to also challenge me. Like, you know, please, I, you know, it's like, bring it on, challenge me, you know, right. like, say, so I think because that is, as you said, like, you know, if it, if it only ends up being, I'm the professor, I'm, you know, I'm the expert, I'm the, I'm the one that knows all this math and all this stuff and these theories and that's fine. I do. But at the same time, like there's something that I don't know. And 
I'm relying on you to bring a perspective that I'm not able to see. Right. right? So there's a, you know, so there's a, you know, a, you know, I don't know. The reciprocity. Beach, the yeah. Reciprocity there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. A bee in a flower. Oh, I love that. I right. cut you off with and your I think, analogy. I think, I think it's really, that's why I think it's a kind of, you know, a striving for humility. Um, and again, I'm not cl- claiming that I, that I have humility, you know, you know, um, but the, being, but having that awareness that, that actually I got a big, uh, you know, I got a big ego and like, uh, I think, you know, sometimes a smart guy, but actually, but just being aware of that, that that's going on. And that dynamic is, may, may actually be um, um, propelling that dynamic and to, and, to, and, to, and to just be aware of it, as you said, and stop every now and then yeah, and, and take it in a different direction or allow that different direction to, to flourish. I, I really love what you're saying, and I love the word humility, and it's really what I've tried to invite a lot of my, particularly my white-bodied clients in the classes that I teach on embodied anti-racism, is to just, you know, consider having an embodied humility that's rooted in dig- dignity and integrity, not in shame, and to use that as a place of connection and exchange and generosity and empowerment, and not, and, 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 and just not... Um, what does they say? You're serving, you're, you're, you're playing small doesn't serve the world. I think that was Mother Teresa or something, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But also, we don't need to take up all the air in the room either. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a both and. Um, I, I, I could talk to you forever, uh, and yet, unfortunately, I think uh, you have to go. I have to go. Um, there's so much that, that we can talk about. Maybe we'll do a revival, uh, you know, uh, down the line. Because, always happy. Yeah, I really, really enjoy talking with you, so always happy to do this again. Yeah, me too. I'm just going to give a shout-out again uh, to the books, Fear of a Black Universe, and Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. And for those, yes, it's a, you know, given props to Chuck D and Public Enemy, Fear of a Black Planet. And then we're talking over here about uh, the jazz of physics, uh, Dr. Stephen Alexander. And um, again, uh, the president of the National Society of Black Physicists, I'd love to ask you more about that. Um, And uh, a professor of physics at Brown University, and just a delightful uh, human and musician. Good luck with all of your your playing and your improvisations and your expansions and your embodiment. And um, yeah, I'd love to reconnect another time. Thanks again. Thank you, Francesca. Great being here. Take care. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.